in the face of increased pressure to achieve higher quality acute care outcomes at lower costs, Philips EICU program helps bring together people, process, and technology to address these issues through centralized clinical monitoring, workflow standardization, advanced clinical decision support, and robust benchmarking and data analytics. For more information, visit philips.com EICU. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Enfield. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Craig Lilly about his presentation at the 48th Critical Care Congress entitled, Why You Need a Tele-ICU. Dr. Lilly is the director and founder of the ICU telemedicine program at the University of Massachusetts. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. And before we begin, do you have any disclosures you'd like to report? No, I'm in strict uh, adherence with uh, University of Massachusetts uh, conflict of interest policies. Um, you spoke very passionately at the 48th uh, Critical Care Congress about why tele-ICU is important. How did you become interested in this? And uh, give the, the listeners just a brief bit about your background, please. Well, I had um, joined critical care leadership in the Harvard system and when I be, was asked to take over their medical intensive care unit. And the Brigham Women's Hospital is a 600-bed tertiary Harvard teaching hospital, and there were 10 medical intensive care unit beds for that whole place. So at that time, we were under intense pressure uh, to use those beds with really maximal efficiency. And it became increasingly clear to me as more and more patients could benefit from critical care services, both on the medical and surgical side, that we just had to have better tools for doing it, tools that could transcend time, place, and geographic barriers. And increasingly, it became uh, clear that uh, using telecommunications tools the same way we do in our personal life was something that could make a real difference. So I was um, asked in 2005 uh, to come out and to build an ICU telemedicine program at the University of Massachusetts for the UMass Memorial Healthcare System and to determine whether or not it was bringing value and if it was to build it up and if it wasn't uh, to turn it off. And so we not only built the program, but we installed a number of um, information and informatics tools to gather information so that we could know whether or not it was impactful or not. And along the way, we learned a lot of stuff about where it can help and where it can't. And that's really was the focus of my presentation at the, at the Congress. The pro-con format uh, sort of forces you onto one side, but the real shared goals of the session were to try to make it clear where it made sense to, to use these kind of tools and where it probably wouldn't make any difference. And from your experience, um, where do you find the most benefit uh, to the patient and to the providers? Well, it's really, it's really totally a, uh, a local question, and it really depends on whether you have enough resources uh, to really give high-quality care and to follow the patients closely enough. One of the big um, advances, along with the cameras and microphones, are the monitoring systems that can predict on a timeline out of a population of patients who's going to deteriorate before they actually start to tank their blood pressure or start to require um, some sort of uh, respiratory support, and increasingly uh, before they develop neurological complications. So the uh, ways to do this have come along, and we're increasingly interested in uh, making those predictions earlier so that we can focus our attentions on patients 
where it really makes a difference rather than patients who already have a care plan that's highly li- that's working and is likely to continue to do so. It really is a shift from time-based rounding models to acuity-based or patient need-based uh, models. And it's not a substitution for the humanistic part of building relationships with patients, but it does allow you to uh, more uh, efficiently focus your skill on patients who can benefit from additional evaluation management services. When you started building this program, um, what kind of feedback did you get for the providers who were sure the early adopters of the EICU platform? Well, it really depends on um, what your structure is. So here at UMass, um, it was different than the Harvard system. In the in this um, you know central Massachusetts location, there was a commitment to making critical care better where there was really a sense in the major downtown teaching hospitals that they really truly were the best, really the best care in the world, and, and, and maybe it didn't need to be any better. But here there was a sense of urgency that, boy, we really needed to, you know, there's a lot of patients and a lot of need, and we need to get out there and uh, do a better job of, of serving those patients. And so we all decided that anybody who worked in our ICU enterprise for more than 30 days um, was going to be part of the off-site team. And that included our trauma surgeons and everybody who was an attending physician in any of our adult intensive care units. So we had a model where we're really on both sides of the camera at more than one um, medical center site. And it wasn't very long after we did that that the members of our community, initially our um, affiliated hospitals and then other non-affiliated hospitals, started saying, oh, we really, at night, on weekends, we really need your a skill set. We need your help to take care of these patients. So we rapidly grew from about 80 or 90 patients at our major medical center to 160 patients throughout almost all of central Massachusetts. And then along the way, we learned, you know, where it made financial sense to do it, um, how it affected the flow of patients among the institutions. And about three years in, we realized that in addition to just, um, you know, serving, providing service or coverage, if you will, that we were really starting to manage the population across the region so that higher acuity patients, um, transplant patients, patients with a neurosurgical and other high acuity needs could be at our major medical center and other patients who may have the potential to need that but mostly need to be closely monitored and had a high likelihood of a good outcome could be monitored just as effectively and just as efficiently in our community hospitals. And so what we essentially saw was the... Um, the number of high acuity cases that we could care for at our medical center went up and the wait times went down. And in our community hospitals, the um, average acuity went up because they weren't sending patients into the central system who really didn't need to be there. So from the financial point of view, not of the providers, but of the institutions, it turned out that the amount of revenue that you could make by increasing your case volume and increasing your acuity and keeping patients locally more than paid for the cost of having the off-site team get involved when uh, things were going well and the patients maybe needed to be evacuated. And it also turned out that the overall cost of third-party payers were strikingly lower in this model. So we were um, somewhat surprised to find that it seemed from a financial perspective to be uh, essentially a win for every, everyone, including on the professional practice side from, a, from that point of view. It's really rare to get a program that has such a win-win for everybody involved. 
what barriers do you continue to face with uh, people implementing tele-ICU programs, and, and what have you faced locally? No, I think that it all comes down to the same humanistic problems in that um, it, if you're really going to become more efficient, the key to it is having a standard way to be able to give care and to make the standard way the most efficient and the most cost-effective way. And by training everyone and doing common tasks the same way and by having reporting functionality where you can identify members of your workforce who aren't doing that, you can really start to standardize care. And there's a huge value to that. Um, There are fewer pharmacy errors. There are fewer um, delays. There are fewer unnecessary tests. There's um, lower uh, waiting times to get the right expertise, surgical or neurosurgical or cardiological, uh, into the case at the right time. And so uh, to make that happen, you have to set up ways for people to collaborate. One of the big advantages um, that UMass had was an urgency around doing that, and not just among doctors, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, ethicists, everyone really adopted this interprofessional model for the highest acuity patients. And the obstacles are all the same. Um, There are certain jealousies, certain biases in practice. It's hard for people to to, um, transition over to a more standard way. And so you have to have skillful and honest and um, accurate data-driven ways to settle those differences. I mean, one of the big stories was one of our community hospitals said, no, 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 we know how to manage our glycemic control. Our protocol's better. So we tested it. You know, we did a crossover trial. And if it would have turned out that their way was better, I guarantee you we would have done it at the medical center. But it turned out that the medical center would have got better outcomes. So it really is a matter of, being data-driven and honest and truthful and uh, trying to do the best thing uh, for patients. And almost everything that we've attempted where there's good evidence and there's a way to standardize, there are no obstacles to doing that, when we standardize, we see benefits, benefits and outcomes and benefits from a financial perspective as well. That's really amazing to get that sort of buy-in from so many people. I was struck early on how you said that anyone who worked in the ICU uh, for more than 30 days also worked in the the tele-ICU program. Uh, What has been the experience of mixing trauma surgeons, anesthesia critical care, pulmonary critical care, uh, and the cross-pollination that creates? Boy, it's hard to underestimate um, or understate. Um, the way in which it changed people's perspective. There's like an old Native American saying, you know, walk a mile in the other, the other Indian's moccasins. And um, so this is really, uh, this really allowed that to happen. About four years in, we really realized that it wasn't a great use of our trauma surgeon's time to be down here because there was so much operative need at night. So we decided that we would um, no longer have them work overnight in the off-site support center as long as they were taking a number, a, a reasonable number of, you know, nighttime in the house, um, you know, at, at the, in the operating room kind of uh, call sessions, their nighttime call was there. And about three or four years after we did that, so when we first did it, we realized that having to deal with the medical cases and some of the issues that are involved actually caused their general approach to patient care, including their surgical care, to be slightly softer and for them to be more 
um, flexible. They started to take initially pancreatitis and lower GI bleed patients on their service when the medical service was overflowed, and they were more willing uh, to give up patients after the 10th or 11th day of care who were going to ultimately end up in the chronic care system to the medical services so that they could uh, get there, keep the operating rooms open. So this, um, it directly acted to increase our capacity, but it also um, increased the knowledge about surgical problems and particularly neurosurgical complications and neurological adverse outcomes for our medical group. So everyone learned more, everyone um, collaborated more, and it's been interesting after having been out for the better part of five or six years, we've decided a few nights a year we're going to bring the trauma surgeons back over here um, to sort of relearn those lessons and to all work together on our overall a patient flow because we've really noticed as the population ages, there's just more demand for critical care in the community than, than our older systems could accommodate. So we know we have to change. We know we have to meet these needs. And the, the, the cameras and the micro, microphones and the uh, reports and the sign-in and sign-out are all just tools that allow us to do that a little bit more effectively. That sounds like a, a really great lesson learned for a lot of us um, and sounds like an interesting finding that I'd love to talk more about it maybe offline sometime. Um, I would like to know, because I'm sure that people who are listening to this podcast will be interested in setting up their own tele-ICU program. What are some lessons learned uh, as you've done this now twice um, that you could share with people as they go into this business? Well, there's lots of options. And I think the most important um, perspective has to be you have to really understand your own problems and make solutions, craft solutions that are likely to work in your local culture. So one of the key, so the key principles were all the decisions were made by consensus and every major stakeholder, including pharmacy and nursing, were at the table. Um, and it wasn't a single decision-making um, session. It was a whole uh, ongoing um, series of meetings that we've incorporated into our critical care governance strategy, which in our case is critical care operations. And relative to um, other areas of our operations like OBGYN or pediatrics or general medicine or general surgery, this group has been better able to broker major changes like the introduction of a new medical record, uh, changes in reimbursement strategy, and um, changes in how our patients flow out of the hospital than other areas because they're working really across disciplines and working together. So uh, communication, addressing real problems, and having honest data, accurate data about what you're doing is key. And most of us have found that uh, the data that comes out of the large medical records that we've all paid a lot of money for, it's not exactly accurate and not exactly is not good enough for this. We have to have exactly accurate data. And so um, how you get data and how you use it, um, it's easier to get people to um, ante up the effort to get it right if they get to see it and they get to make the decisions off it. It doesn't go to some, you know, administrator who's going to make some decision behind their back. It's really upfront, honest, and everyone looks at the data and comes to consensus about what it means and also what we should do about it. And it definitely uh, changes practice. And the other thing that's, I think, really important to get people to collaborate is to focus on the patient need. And, and in, criti in adult critical care, um, they're just it's just clear that there's going to be increasing need as the population ages and that we just have to do things a little bit differently and work together to figure out how to be more effective.
The, the data issue you're talking about, were you finding that the uh, data input was the error or was it that the data being collected by the EMR is not useful for this uh, kind of work? Oh, there are all kinds of problems with these EHRs. Um, and so you really have to start looking at what's coming out before you realize that, uh, to realize why it is what it is. And um, a lot of them are very flexible at the level of the provider. So it allows several different ways and customizable ways to put it in. And um, a lot of the newer systems even allow ways for you not to put in information and, and just uh, dictate whatever you want or just put whatever you want in the medical record. So we have really found that for things that matter, things that we want to change the needle on, we need to have discrete data elements. We have to have real-time reporting, real-time meaning like the next day, and the reports have to be in a format that the end users use them. So f some of our reports have as many as 50 or 60 different versions because people use the data differently. I want this column. I don't want that column. And those have to be crafted in a way that the same message, no matter one of the, which one of those 54 reports you get, that the overall summary and the overall message is the same. And you can see your version, and maybe the nephrologist can see their version, but everyone needs to see the same overall target and how their piece of making it the way it needs to be um, interacts. And so that is, um, I'd love to tell you that informatic science is such that that happens every time and it's really easy. And we've found that with most of the electronic medical records, and we've had three different ones here, um, that basically it's an offer. I mean, it never comes out exactly that way, and you always have to modify it. So. I think that how you do that as a group um, brings you together. You can use that as a way, a common ground to get nurses, doctors, different disciplines to work together. Another secret way uh, to move things forward is that it's not like our institutions can continue to give the same care without um, investing capital. And so you tie the capital grant, the access to capital to participation in the process. It doesn't cost you anything to do that other than it, it may fix it so one of your senior leaders doesn't get to decide in, a, you know, in the cigar-smoking room what happens with the money. But if you go that way, it buys everyone in, and then when you go to implement, a lot of the people that need to do the training and the implementation are already on board and understand the importance of it. So it's been, for us, expediting uh, to work in that way. And um, it's also, I think, in the long term, brought our uh, administrative team, our senior management team, more on more in line with our uh, clinical goals and needs. That's uh, fascinating, and I'm also really struck about how much you've talked about during this podcast um, around the areas of quality improvement and using the tele-ICU platform to really standardize care across the inpatient settings. Can you speak a little bit more about what you found there? Well, we, we have found that um, if we, uh, universally, if we make the best way, if, we, if there's good, when, where there's good evidence and we can identify a best way for us and also usually consistent with the best, best way for everybody else as well, then we found that we need to structure our workflows so that the most convenient, the easiest, and the most um, intuitive way to provide the care is the best way. And when we do those things, we can get over 98% adherence to the target, uh, the target practice, um, and in aggregate, those add up. So that's that's the that's the key mantra: the easiest way, the safest way, the best way, the most convenient way. That's awesome. I I'm also I mean, 
what I'm hearing is, is that by using a multidisciplinary approach and bringing everyone to the table, you're able to break down a lot of barriers that tend to get in our ways when we talk across ICU specialties. And I think that's a, an amazing outcome. Was there anything that you personally found surprising when you uh, did this work? Well, um, one of the things that was a surprise to me, and I think a big surprise to my CFO, was um, was we started out with good financial reporting. It's almost everyone has that you need to, because it gets reconciled by PricewaterhouseCoopers and other people with accounting skills that can identify if it's not right. So our financial records, they're 100% accurate in aggregate. But when you do the drill down, the data is a complete mess. It just turns out that the number of times that they overcharge and the number of times they undercharge exactly balance out. So that the final report is perfect. But as soon as you go to try to do operations off that same kind of data, it doesn't work. And that was a huge revelation for us. Was, oh, my God, um, we, we're not going to be able to just build an accurate reporting system off this great financial system that we have. Um, we need to have more, and it needs to be more sophisticated. So that was a big, um, that was a big uh, aha moment. One other important aspect of telemedicine that you haven't asked me about is where does it fit in relative to burnout and surge? And so I've said that, gee, there's um, a lot of patients coming into our institution, and we'd all love it if they came in at exactly the same rate and they all came in during daytime hours. But it turns out that's not how it works. They sort of come in in waves, and we get overwhelmed. And so one of the things about telemedicine and allowing people to practice from a geographically dispersed locations, sometimes maybe even from home, is that it gives you capacity to deal with surge that you wouldn't have otherwise. We all seem to um, staff our emergency departments and operating rooms and um, intensive care units like if the same number of people are here every day and we don't flex up and flex down and we particularly don't do that in ultra short time. So telemedicine is a great way in which to flex up your workforce when you really need to. And the other thing about it is that in this paradigm, you can have one really senior person look over a huge number of patients at night which decreases the nighttime burden. So while none of my um, colleagues particularly enjoy being awake at night uh, in, the, in our uh, telemedicine support center, uh, seeing cases and trying to get the care right, none of them, would, none of them prefer to, take, to be taking phone calls all night long, like before, before we had the, the off-site center to support it. And that's doubly true in the community who can now retain intensivists because they can provide the mostly daytime, the occasional weekend job rather than having to be up all day and all night and getting burned out. So I think that telemedicine is a great solution for ICU-related burnout. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Um, you actually did take the, the words right out of my mouth because I was wondering how this affected burnout for your group. With all that being said, I wonder if there's uh, three takeaways that you would like the listener to hear uh, from this podcast that might help them improve their career but, or also bring telemedicine to their local institution. The, the, the first message is that if you found ways that telecommunications technologies have made your non-professional life better, then consider those as ways for them to make your professional life better. For ICU telemedicine programs, they need to be implemented where they're going to work, and they need to not be implemented where they're not going to. And lastly, one size doesn't fit all. Whatever solution you select, whether it's building up more intensive care units or hiring more people to work down your emergency department, 
or or to do a telemedicine solution. It has to be tailored to what your local needs are. So one size does not fit all. That's a very important message. Thank you so much. I want to conclude this uh, fascinating discussion of the iCritical Care podcast. For iCritical Care podcast, I am Dr. Kyle Enfield. In the face of increased pressure to achieve higher quality acute care outcomes at lower costs, Philips EICU program helps bring together people, process, and technology to address these issues through centralized clinical monitoring, workflow standardization, advanced clinical decision support, and robust benchmarking and data analytics. For more information, visit philips.com slash EICU. Kyle Enfield, M.D. Kyle Enfield, M.D. is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.